Beloved, you can tell a lot about a person by the direction they're looking. In the inestimable wisdom of the late, great Satchel Paige, he said, never look back, something might be gaining on you. So we should be looking forward. However, one challenge is one element, one reality, one certainty that awaits all of us as we look forward is death, is death. Steve Lawson said the greatest challenge of faith is the greatest enemy of man in one sense, namely death. Death is the acid test of any man or woman. Who you are when you face death is who you truly are. This is the final test. This is the battle terminus. You see, we are all born dying. We are all born with a terminal fatal disease. It's been said that nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. Taxes may or may not be inevitable. Death, however, is. You see, life is like a mist. It appears in the morning, and then when the sun of day comes, it dissolves. Our life, your life, is like chaff that the wind blows away, and it's gone, never to reappear. Life is like water that's spilled on the ground. The ground drinks it in, and it's impossible to regather it again. We are like grass that withers, like a flower that fades in the heat of a summer day. Our life is like a nighttime dream that is forgotten at the breakfast table. It's a sigh, just a puff of breath, and it's over. So, how do you look forward to death? How can we look forward to death? How should we, as believers in Jesus Christ, look forward to death? By way of contrast, the great Mark Twain, who was described by one person as the greatest humorist ever produced in America, at the end of his life, as he approached the grave, he became morose and weary even of life, and he lamented in writing shortly before he entered eternity with these words, quote, he said, a myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them, infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead. Longing for release is in their place. It, release, comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth had ever given them. They vanished from a world where they were of no consequence and achieved nothing, a world which will lament them a day and forget them forever, end quote. Morose, sad words. Socrates said this, All of the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail when we leave this earth. If only there was a firmer foundation upon which to sail, mark this, Perhaps, Socrates said, perhaps some divine word. Thank you, Socrates. Turn, beloved, to Hebrews chapter 11. Our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 through 22. You see, for the believer, for the Son of God, for the daughter of God, death is where the dawn breaks 
through the night. It's where midnight meets morning. And what's striking as we continue our journey through this great hall of faith chapter, what's striking in these three verses is that there's nothing really striking about them at face value in and of themselves without understanding their background. This reveals the beauty of the no-verse-left-behind wisdom of expository preaching. You see, in Hebrews chapter 11, the author is brilliantly, this author, pastor, preacher, writing to the original audience of Jewish believers that God has for every child of God, son or daughter of God, in any land, tongue, tribe, or nation, the author is weaving together a complex tapestry of faith, a mosaic of faith examples. And when we look at the examples of faith we get in Hebrews chapter 11, certainly these three men as well, they are far from perfect. However, God uses them as examples for us, as motivation for us, examples of faith. Faith, we know, is the commodity being promoted by the author in these little vignettes of text that we have in chapter 11. Uh, We encountered first the antediluvian men of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Then we come into the patriarchs with Abraham and Sarah, and with these three men in these three verses, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we wrap up the patriarchs with this trilogy of patriarchs by faith by faith by faith whereas God took through the author of Hebrews 19 verses in the first part of Hebrews 11 to cover the first 25 chapters of Genesis now he covers the last 25 chapters of Genesis in just three verses three rapid fire staccato verses by faith by faith by faith Isaac Jacob and Joseph. And it's interesting because he wraps up these three men in between the lengthy treatment of Abraham, which preceded, and the lengthy treatment of Moses, which will begin in verse 23. And so what we have is we have the son, grandson, and great-grandson of Father Abraham, spanning the generations and centuries by faith, all of whom we will see that is recorded here in their old age approaching death. And what they do is they pass on the blessings and the instruction that God had given Abraham and Isaac, and they pass them on to future generations because they believe the word of God. They believe the promise of God. Beloved, listen as I read our text here this morning, beginning in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. So what we have, we have three verses. We have a nice three-point Baptist outline. Three snapshots of faith. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Because, understand this, you don't know how to live. I don't know how to live. No one knows how to live if we don't know how to die. 
part of the original intent from the author to the original audience, part of God's intent for you and for me, beloved, is that we would know how to die well for the glory of God, that we would die in the faith with our hope in Christ shining brightly even as our last breath escapes our lips. Let's look at the first snapshot of faith we have in verse 20, namely Isaac. Now, when we think of Isaac, and even when we think of the previous examples, we think of the worshiping faith of Abel, and the walking faith of Enoch, and the working faith of Noah, and the wayfaring faith of Abraham, and the womb-bearing faith of Sarah. And as I predicted last time, my alliteration is running out, so I have no W for you here this morning. But as we think of these examples of the previous men and women that God has used before, what will God pull from the life of Isaac? Uh, turn back to Genesis 25, and we'll be, of course, thumbing back through different portions of Genesis 25 through chapter 50. Perhaps he will pick out what is my favorite episode of the life of Isaac. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren as part of God's economy, as God's providential control Rebecca is another woman who is stricken with barrenness as part of God's unfolding plan and reminder of his good measure and good step and good grace upon people. And in Genesis 25, verse 21, we read that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Many of you may know that that verse has a special place in my heart. My beloved wife, Margie, when God gave us our firstborn son, Zachary, my wife, Margie, was having difficulty getting pregnant for many years. And part of my heart's prayer for about eight to ten months was, Lord, if a quiverful for us is one, we're among all couples most blessed. But if you would be pleased to open up my beloved Margie's womb so she could experience pregnancy and even God if I could be so bold if you could give us a daughter to compliment our son and of course narrative portions of scripture are not prescriptive but in this case God sovereignly chose to open up Margie's womb and she gave birth to Rebecca named after Genesis 25 21 and then we were blessed triply blessed beyond measure with our third son Jaden so this verse does have a special place in my heart I freely admit will the author point towards that what event will he use? Perhaps he might even go over to chapter 26, where in Genesis 26, in verse 3, God says, speaking in the future to Isaac, I will be with you. Or in verse 24 of chapter 26, he says, I am with you. And then in verse 28, Isaac's friend said, the Lord has been with you. So he covers the past, he covers, excuse me, he covers the future, he covers the past, and he, cover, <laughs> he covers the future, he covers the present, and he covers the past. There we go. <laughs> Will the author of Hebrews go to that in a more articulate fashion than me, I'm sure? No, what he does in verse 20 of Hebrews 11, the author writes, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Beloved, the author of Hebrews here is commending Isaac as an example of faith to you and me, as an example of a forward-looking faith. You see, what happened was after Rebekah became pregnant as a result of Isaac's prayer and, of course, God's sovereignty, in 25-21, look at, chapter, look at uh, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 25. 
The children struggled together within her. The babies in the womb, the twins in the womb were warring. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And then at the end of verse 23, he gets to the rub. And the older will serve the younger. You see, in the culture at that time, there was the law of primogeniture. Basically, the law, the custom, the practice of the double blessing, of the special blessing going to the firstborn. So God sovereignly, providentially directs, gives instruction, and gives a promise telling Rebecca that the older will serve the younger, that God's blessing, God's favor will be on the younger, not the older. And as we continue with the rest of chapter 25 and in chapter 26, what we see is Isaac and Rebecca. This is a, we could call it using modern phraseology, a dysfunctional family because Isaac favors his firstborn son Esau, the hairy baby, the red baby, the mighty hunter, whereas Jacob is the mama's boy. He's a smooth man, and she favors him. So we see this tension within the family, even in the midst of these heroes of the faith that God brings out for us in Hebrews. You see, Isaac, as well as Rebecca and Jacob, like the rest of the Old Testament heroes, like the 12 apostles, are a mixture of faith and failure. And what Isaac does in this case is even though he knows through God's words to Rebekah that God's blessing, God's particular favor and choice will be on the younger, on Jacob rather than Esau, Isaac wants to bless Esau. He wants to circumvent, he wants to defy God's will. And we pick this up in chapter 27, verse 1. Now it came about When Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see, that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, him, Here I am. And basically what Isaac does from this point forward, he says, and again, Isaac is old. He's he's blind at this point. He can't see. He tells, basically on his deathbed, he tells Esau, his favored son, his firstborn son, Go out as a mighty hunter. Get your game. kill Kill a beast and come back and prepare the savory food that I love, give it to me, feed me, and then I will bless you again in defiance of God. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with a father loving a son. There's nothing wrong with a father wanting to bless his son. But the way in which Isaac is doing this is, again, in defiance of the word of God, of the clear direction of God. And what takes place as we move forward in chapter 27 is Rebecca hears of this, and she wants to take her deceit and thwart Isaac's will. And she basically tells Jacob, calls her mama's boy son to him, says, go into the pen, get two goats, kill them, bring them to me, and I will prepare this savory food, and I will have you go in disguised in deceit as Esau so that you can feed your father Isaac, and he will then pronounce his blessing upon you. Jacob says, well, if I do that, what if he knows who I am? What if he knows and recognizes me in my deceit? And Rebekah says, let the curse be upon me. So he goes and he kills the goat. Jacob kills the goat. He comes, brings the meat to Rebekah. She prepares the savory stew. She takes the skin of the goats and puts it on 
Jacob's hands and on the back of his neck. She also tells Jacob to go and get Esau's clothing and put it on his garment. This is the day before they had, you know, firecracker uh, game uh, pellets and uh, detergent, all the rest of that. So the clothes smelled like Esau. And she sends Esau in with the hair on his hands, the hair on the back of his neck, dressed in Esau's clothes. And he goes in and he says to his father, Isaac, I am here. And he says, well, who is it? He goes, it's Esau. I mean, <coughs> it's Esau. <laughs> Jacob says, well, come here. And he fills his hand and he smells him. He says, well, he smells, you smell, it's the voice of Jacob but it's the smell in the hands of Esau, and he takes food, he eats it, and then we pick up the blessing that he pronounces, thinking in defiance he's pronouncing it on Esau, but it's really on Jacob. In verse 27, so he came close and kissed him, and when he, Isaac, smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, see the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. Now, he's giving a blessing. He's taking and passing on the words of blessing that God had given to Father Abraham and that had been passed from Abraham to Isaac, God had even passed these on to Isaac back at the beginning of chapter 26, and he's passing these on, but again, he thinks he's passing them on to Esau. Uh, Jacob leaves after receiving the blessing, then Esau, in verse 30 going forward, comes in. Jacob, real, excuse me, Isaac realizes that he's been deceived, and he even then gives a blessing. Esau cries out loudly and says, Father, do you have any blessing for me? And he says, no, son, it's been taken away. But he actually does pronounce a small blessing upon him. Look down to verse 39. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, this is now Esau, behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. And by your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. And those are words of really a curse, not a blessing. But look at what he says now. He says, but it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. So that is a blessing. That's a small blessing. That's a minuscule blessing compared to the blessing that he'd given Jacob. But there was a measure of relief that he even passed on there. So that is the blessing that he passed on. You see, Isaac again wanted in defiance of God's clear direction and promise to defy. One thing, beloved, we should understand here, in Genesis 27, there are no heroes. There are only sinners. Everyone in the family seeks the blessings of the Lord without bowing the knee to the Lord. Everyone, that is, meaning Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob. Esau was a pagan. Esau despised the blessing of the Lord. He had previously sold his birthright for a pot of red stuff because he was hungry. So Esau wasn't concerned about, he despised even the blessing of the Lord. But the children of God, the sons of God, the daughter of God, sought the blessing of the Lord without bending the knee to the Lord. Beloved, the reality is faith and duplicity, alas, can go together. But they don't belong together. In Christ, the 
ends don't justify the means. We can't break the rules. We can't lie. We can't exaggerate wildly from the pulpit in our evangelism for some end that we think. We need to trust God to affect his will through obedience to his revealed will. Esau was a pagan. In this case, Isaac meant what he did for evil. Rebekah meant what she did for evil, ultimately, and Jacob meant it for evil. But in the economy of God, God meant it for good. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Even the sinful behavior, the sins, the transgressions of his children, God, there are consequences to be sure, and there were consequences from this great sin of the war between Esau and Jacob, the warring between Edom and Israel that flowed from this. There was tragedy, there was heartbreak that came as a result of this, but God, in his goodness, in his sovereign will, used this even for his good. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia before James Montgomery Boyce, Barnhouse said, before a great work of grace, there must be a great earthquake. And what happens here is, when Isaac learned that he was deceived, more to the point when Isaac learned that his deceit was met by God's plan. He made no attempt to revoke the blessing. Look at verse sorry, let me, 33. Verse 33, Genesis 27. This is when he realized that he was deceived by Rebekah and by Jacob and in the presence of Esau, when he realized that Esau was the one that was now in front of him, verse 33, then Isaac trembled violently. Literally, then Isaac trembled with a great trembling and said, who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Look at the last sentence. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Yes, he shall be blessed. Why did Isaac trembled with a great trembling. It was not because he realized that he was tricked. It was not because he realized that his blessing had gone to Jacob rather than to Esau. He trembled with a great trembling, not because he was a victim of deceit, but because the mighty hand of God foiled him in his deceit. That was why he trembled with a violent trembling, and that's why at the end of verse 33, he says, yes, and he shall be blessed. Beloved, even in the midst of this chapter of sin, he had faith. He knew and realized that the word of God was true and would come true. We could say that the faith of Isaac that God is commending to you and me is the faith of a restored surrender of a resolve we should say a resolved surrender God's hand is true the content of the blessings even that he poured out when he thought he was blessing Esau was a forward-looking faith he believed the promises of God and it materialized in a very powerful way in which this happened beloved this is the invisible determination of God to keep his word God's Words, God's promises, cannot be undone by human manipulation. His invincible sovereignty will always 
prevail. And even when we think of the land and the seed and the blessings that God had given Abraham back at the beginning of Genesis 12 when he called them out of Ur, they were passed on to Isaac and now passed on to Jacob. All of these are advancing the agenda even of God's promise to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. This is part of his invincible sovereignty marching forward. And it's a reminder to us that the true heir is not the outward heir, it's the inward heir. Abel was the younger. It wasn't Cain, it was Abel. It wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac. It's not Esau, it's Jacob in the plan and choice of God. Beloved, as we would apply this to us now, we must wait upon the will of God. We need to, using an illustration, we need to wait for the starting pistol, lest we have a false start and are disqualified. We can't try to interfere with the revealed will of God as we would seek to move things forward regarding the unrevealed will of God. And in the context of Hebrews, we are reminded that, beloved, when you are faithless, when I am faithless, he is faithful. God is faithful. And every good word that he promises to his children will not return to him void without accomplishing what he purposes for it. That's the first snapshot of faith. Isaac, the second snapshot of faith we see in verse 21 is Jacob. And we can ask a similar question. What event from Jacob's life will the author choose for commendation? And when we're back here in Genesis and we're going forward, we realize that Jacob falls in love with this beautiful girl, Rachel. And he wants to have her hand in marriage. So Jacob, which by the way, Jacob was born a heel grabber and he remained a heel grabber all the days of his life. He was a huckster. And Jacob, the huckster, meets his match with his huckster father-in-law, Laban. So he works for seven years to Laban, thinking that he would get the hand of Rachel. And Laban deceives him, deceives Jacob with a veil. So pause for a second. Jacob, who deceived his father Isaac, who was blind, is deceived by a veil. And he realizes that he was given Leah rather than Rachel. So he says, well, I'll serve you another seven years. So again, he's taking advantage. The huckster is outmatched by huckster father-in-law Laban, and he serves another seven years. But what I do love about even that morass of sin, look at Genesis 29, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. This is after the previous seven years. And they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. What a beautiful statement on the love, putting aside the sin of polygamy, which is never an excuse, was never part of God's plan. Even out of the midst of this cloudy, murky, dirty, dingy sin, there are beautiful facets that shine through. So would God go towards that? How about Jacob's night-long Brazilian jiu-jitsu match with God in Genesis 32? God appeared, sorry, they wrestled all night long. You may have heard this before. They wrestled all night long. And then even when his when God in human form touched Jacob's hip and dislocated it, he was able to hold on to him and not let him go till he blessed it, ergo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But the main point, 
Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for tolerating me. The main point is Jacob wrestled all night with God, and God changed his name from Jacob, the heel catcher, to Israel, one who wrestles with God. Would the author of Hebrews go to that great example of wrestling with God even in prayer? No. What he does in verse 21, back in Hebrews 11, is by faith. Again, the key to this new vineyard of wisdom. By faith, Jacob... As he was dying, literally, the Hebrew author says, as he is dying, he, remember, the author of Hebrews, more so than any other New Testament author, when he is quoting from the Old Testament and even quoting accounts from the Old Testament, he puts it in the present tense. He draws us as the readers right into the action as though it's happening right this minute. By faith, Jacob, as he is dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Jacob, like Father Isaac, was a mixture of faith and failure. Uh, Some have said, Jacob schemes, God redeems. Then what Jacob does is he believes the word of God, and as he gets old, on his deathbed, so to speak, he blesses all of his sons. In Genesis 49, he begins Genesis 49, verse 1, with his firstborn son, Reuben. He goes on from there. Uh, Turn over to Genesis 49. We certainly don't have time to go through all of it, but there's one son in particular that even though it's not the main thrust of the text in Hebrews, I want to point out, namely in verse 8, the one son, Judah, Jacob prophesies to Judah, Genesis 49, 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. And then in verse 10, there's a direct messianic prophecy because Judah is in the line, in the seed promise, the descendant promise, from whom Messiah will come. Verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a messianic title. Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Uh, Sometime I think I might do a special one-off message just on that passage, of course, with Jesus being the Lion of Judah. But what is fascinating is in Genesis, before we get, what, what comes before Genesis 49? Good answer, Genesis 48. You see, before Jacob begins blessing his firstborn son Reuben and the rest of them, he first draws his attention to Joseph and Joseph's two sons back in Genesis 48. Because Joseph, the youngest of his son, is the one who in God's economy takes the place. He's the one that receives the double blessing of the right of primogeniture, the double blessing of the firstborn, even though he's the youngest son, because again, it's God's choice, it's God's plan. And that's even why when Joseph, they split Joseph up into two sons to Manasseh, his firstborn, firstborn, and Ephraim, because he's receiving the double blessing. And he blesses them first in chapter 
48. And what's fascinating is when Joseph brings his two sons, his older son Manasseh, the older of the son, and Ephraim to Jacob, he puts Manasseh in his left hand, in Joseph's left hand, and he takes Ephraim in his right hand and brings them to Jacob because Jacob will use then his right hand to bless Manasseh because in Joseph's mind, and in Joseph's mind, this is not in defiance of something from God, but Joseph is wanting his firstborn son to receive the double blessing. That's why he brings Manasseh to Jacob's right hand and brings Ephraim to Jacob's left hand. And what's fascinating, though, is in Genesis 48, Jacob crosses his hands over. So that his right hand goes to Ephraim, the younger, and his left hand goes to Manasseh, the older. And Joseph says, no, father, don't cross your hands. You are to bless Manasseh. And Jacob says, no, I'm going to bless Ephraim first. So even there, we have another case that shows it's God's choice. It's not Ishmael. It's not Esau. It's not Reuben. It's not even Manasseh. Beloved, this is God's electing love at work. Joseph brought his boys, but God, through Jacob's actions, crossed them over. If we think of Isaac as a faith of a resolved surrender, we can think of Jacob, the heel catcher, Jacob who schemed and God redeemed. On his deathbed, he believed the word of God. He passed the blessings of God on. We could think of Jacob's faith as a faith of ripened maturity, of ripened maturity. And the, then even at the end of Hebrews eleven twenty one, we read the words, and he worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. So similar to Isaac, the author commends to us Jacob also as a forward-looking faith. And we see this in Scripture. We can think of Jesus. Jesus used a negative example from the Old Testament. Do you remember what Jesus said, the command he said? He said, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife as an example. And what did Lot's wife do when she was leaving Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of God's righteous judgment on those wicked cities? She looked back. And God turned her into a pillar of salt. Now, the point there wasn't the mere mechanics of her turning around and looking back. That was a reflection from what was in her heart. She wasn't trusting God. She wasn't loving God. She was longing for her old way of life back in Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they had just been destroyed by God's judgment. And God turned her into a pillar of salt to be a forever reminder for the people of God who, won, who looked back when they should be looking forward. And the contrast here, beloved, is Isaac and Jacob, despite their weakness, despite their frailty, even despite their sin, they are examples of a forward-looking faith. And that leads us to the third snapshot of faith, namely Joseph in verse 22. Now, what's fascinating in this portion of Scripture, you may remember in the first 19 verses, God takes great pain to show us that these men and the woman Sarah are being commended because of their actions, not because of their words. We know James in James chapter 2 tells us that a mere professed faith, it's not merely words. The words need to be 
demonstrated and manifested in actions. But what's fascinating is in these three examples of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they're not being held up as examples because of their actions. They're being held up as examples because of their words. And that's fascinating and that's amazing. It's a great tether. It's a great reminder to us to be balanced in our understanding of Scripture and the importance of all of these things. Look at verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, literally as he was dying, again, present tense, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. Now, again, we can ask the question, why does he pick this? I mean, if we know anything about the life of Joseph, he had a truly extraordinary, he had, a, he had an extraordinarily extraordinary life. 50 years of his life, we know a great deal. The last 60 years, we don't know much until he passed away at the age of 110. We do know from Genesis 37 that even as the youngest son of Jacob, even as the one whose God's hand of favor was upon, that his brothers in great sin became jealous of him. And they threw him in a pit and he was sold into slavery. And what's amazing is the brothers slayed an animal, took the blood of an animal, put it on Joseph's garment and took back and deceived Jacob. So again, in this case, we see a quid pro quo from God. Jacob, who deceived his father Isaac with the blood and the meat of a slain animal, later on was deceived by the blood of a slain animal. This is the wisdom. This is the economy of God. Joseph, of course, was sold into slavery in Egypt. And what we see of him is just a stellar example of one who walked with God. Even though he was unjustly treated by his brother, sold into slavery, we don't get any indication of any kind of pity party or complaining. So what's amazing is the author of Hebrews chooses not to lift up Joseph as an example of humility in his willingness to endure this unjust treatment. We can think of the situation where wicked Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and he doesn't merely walk away from it. He flees from the temptation. And again, the author doesn't commend him in his purity for that. Or we can think of that as God's hand continued to rest upon him, Joseph rose up to be the second most powerful person behind Pharaoh in the greatest empire at the time of Egypt while being a follower of God. So the author doesn't commend him in his humility, in his purity, or even in his integrity, but rather he commends Joseph on his deathbed for his forward-looking faith. Joseph endured his trials nobly and triumphed over them all. So why does the author pick this? If you're in Genesis, turn over to Genesis chapter 50. And we get a key from even the lips of Joseph himself as to what is at stake here. When his brothers appeared to him at the very end, when he revealed himself to them, this is after God used Joseph to protect and preserve not just his father and his brothers and the budding nation of Israel, but even Egypt herself from the great famine. And what Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20 is this. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but... God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So again, not just merely to preserve his father and his brothers in the nation of Israel, but even Egypt to preserve many people 
alive. So therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. You see, to Joseph, he understood that wherever God has you, whether it's pit or prison or palace, God wants you to be right where he's at, and he wants you to be the best believer that you can be there. And we continue reading on in verse 22, and this is where we get into his dying words. And by the way, this entire passage, this entire sermon, these three verses, these are, mark it, the living words of dying men. The living words from Joseph as he's dying are these, verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph believes the word of God, and I love that two-word phrase, I'm about to die, but God. Beloved, but God, Ephesians 3, 1, but God, man may plot, man may hatch ideas and schemes, but God, God will march forward with his invincible sovereignty and his sovereign will to do all things, work out all things for your good, for my good, for our eternal joy in the presence of Christ. And then, Verse 25, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you will carry my bones up from there. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. You see, from the age of 17, when he was sold into slavery in Egypt, Joseph never forgot who he was, and he never forgot where he was heading. He wasn't softened by his immense prosperity, nor did it dim the flame of his faith. You see, they were living in the land. He was in, he was the second most powerful person in Egypt. He could have had a mini pyramid built to him if he had stayed there, but his heart and mind wasn't concerned with building an edifice to his greatness. It was only in the will of God. That's the kind of forward-looking faith that he had. If we think Isaac's faith was a restored assurance, excuse me, a resolved assurance. And if we think that Jacob's faith was a ripened maturity, we can think that Joseph's faith was a remarkable clarity of vision looking forward according to the plan of God. His death in Joseph's mind was but a milestone along the way to that better country. And the end of verse 22, and it's part of what we read at the end of Genesis 50, he gave orders concerning his bones. I mean, what's going on there? Was he really concerned about his bones? I mean, I, I know for me, I, I couldn't care less what my children do with my earthly remains. I remember when I was growing up as a child, my dad had a sister named Vivian, and when she passed away, she was cremated, and her ashes were somewhere in our house. And my Aunt Vivian, she was interesting. She was a member of the Communist Party um, before she became a member of the John Birch Society, uh, which that was even predates me, but that was like kind of the opposite end of the spectrum of the Communist Party. Uh, I guess one thing you can say about my family, there's not a lot of Laodicean lukewarmness. <laughs> in it. But all that to say, I remember after I got my undergraduate degree, 
And uh, they were interviewing my parents and others to get a um, secret clearance um, for myself. And my dad, I remember telling my mom, if Clay doesn't get that clearance because of, of Vivian being the Communist Party, I'm going to flush her down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't really Laodicean either. I, I did end up getting, getting the uh, clearance. But beloved, the point here is this. Joseph's bones were with Israel. They had them when they were under the iron fist of slavery in in Egypt for hundreds of years, for hundreds plus years. And I can imagine there were people that were basically saying, we've had this stupid coffin with us for years. Why don't we just bury the dumb thing? What was Joseph's concern about his bones? You see, they didn't throw it away. They didn't bury it because of God's promise, because of God's presence. Moses, when God rescued the nation from their captivity, Moses took his bones from Egypt, Exodus 13, verse 19, and Joshua buried the bones of Joseph Joseph in Shechem, according to Joshua 24, verse 32. You see, Joseph didn't care about his bones, but he wanted his bones to preach. He wanted his bones to be a reminder of God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac. God spoke to Isaac, Genesis 26, 1. God spoke through Isaac to Jacob, and it was passed on. He wanted the people to remember. In the same way, Noah, when he built that ark for 120 years, Noah's building of the ark was a living sermon to the people. Well, actually, it was a living sermon to the, to the world. So also, Joseph's bones were a sermon, were a reminder to the people of God's promise. Beloved, the lives of the patriarchs were a little dingy. They were a little murky. They were a little dirty at times, but they went out in death basking in the light of glory, basking in the light of their faith. That's why even back in Hebrews 11, the author said in verse 9 of Hebrews 11, by faith he, Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Look at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, each of them had confident assurance of things hoped for, convicting evidence of things not seen as the author opens up with the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. And what's interesting is Joseph pointed to the exodus. He made mention of the exodus. This is the only appearance of the exodus in the New Testament. The word, the Greek word translated exodus here, even the Hebrew as well, basically means removing something from a way, removing something from a path. It was used in nautical world to talk, to describe if you have a boat and removing the ropes that keep it moored before it's ready to embark on a journey. Or it would be used in a military fashion to describe an army that is getting ready to leave the base and engage in warfare. It also came to describe the solemn procession of a funeral service. It appears in two other places, this word translated as exodus, to describe the departure of one who's getting ready to die. Namely, in Luke chapter 9 of Jesus himself, Luke 9, 31, his departure, 
his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Or Peter, describing himself, he says in 2 Peter 1.15, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, after my exodus, you may be able to call these things to mind. So the point here is Joseph, as he's lying on his deathbed, getting ready for his exodus, he points to the exodus, which wouldn't happen to the people for some 15, 1,600 years. Beloved, this is a forward-looking faith. You and I need to be like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We don't build lasting edifices for ourselves because we look for a city and a country above. When the plank is raised for our life, when the anchor is weighed and we set sail for the golden shore, in death we break camp here to start for heaven. And beloved, faith will have its greatest work in your life at the very end. What's more remarkable than faith in life? Faith in death. This is a triumph of faith in the face of death. When the fires of death surround us, when we breathe our last, we are able to say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is thy victory? I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight. Tears lose their bitterness. Where is thy sting, death? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still. Abide with me. Would thou thy cross before my closing eyes shine through the gloom and point me to the skies? Leave in morning breaks and earth vain shadows flee. In life, in death, Lord, abide with me. How to die? Beloved, when you come to the stormy banks of the river of death, cast your eyes to the other side, the celestial city that awaits you. That is the promise of God, God's good word to you and to me. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sinless, perfect life. Thank you, Lord, for being tempted even as we are tempted yet without sin. Thank you, Lord, for allowing those wicked men to beat you, to scourge you, to nail you to a cross. Thank you, Lord, for your death. Thank you, Lord, for your victory over death. Thank you that in your victory we have victory. In your resurrection, we know the resurrection awaits us. Thank you for the hope in life. Thank you for the hope in death. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things, praying and hoping, Lord, that you would bless us and strengthen us to take this good news to a lost and dying world, beginning in our families, beginning in our neighborhoods, beginning in our school, in our workplaces. May you receive all the glory, and it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.